Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. Hello and welcome to From Queer to Eternity, a podcast exploring what it means to us to be queer. My name's Scott Hancock, and every episode I'll be chatting to a different guest from the LGBTQ community, talking about their lives, experiences, and what queerness means to them, and hopefully discovering just how much we all have in common. Due to the nature of these conversations, certain themes, phrases, or experiences discussed may be upsetting for some of our listeners, but generally we're here to celebrate queerness in all its forms and have a good time sharing our stories. This episode, I'll be chatting with... Paul Clayton. Paul, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Uh, well, it's either you or a toasted cheese and ham sandwich, so um, I'm sure that that will come after you, if you pardon the expression. Yes. <laughs> I am both hammy and cheesy, so... <laughs> to begin, can I ask, what does the word queer mean to you? Um, I think it's the politer term of what I was called at school. I think that's what people thought they called gay people um I, we knew the word gay but um queer was probably used more often um i went to a a big red brick grammar school in yorkshire which was very formal in the sixth form we wore caps and gowns if we were councillors or prefects but uh yes queer was uh the term that was used as were several others, uh, bum boy, uh, pufter, pansy. So it was grouped in there for people with um, a lack of relevant vocabulary. I'm interested you talk about it being used at school. Were you out at that point? I don't think I came out, but I don't think the wardrobe door was closed at any no. point. <laughs> I don't really remember. I mean, I remember trying to fulfil to what I thought were my obligations by, you know, slipping an arm round um, a girl who probably wasn't over-blessed in the looks department at a party in Pete Hearn's garage to sort of impress everybody that I could... And I do, I do remember snogging, and it lasted about three seconds. And, What's changed? Well, apart from the fact that I couldn't keep my eyes off Dave English, who was the captain of the first eleven, who was on the other side of the room snogging somebody else, female, and thinking... It would be much nicer to be over there doing that with him. But I just, I don't know. It just, I knew it wasn't me and I knew I didn't get that feeling. And I have always thought that's, in my sense, incredibly lucky that something in my makeup or the environment in which I was raised allowed me to honour my feelings. I mean, I remember getting an enormous crush on somebody in an episode of a black and white episode of Doctor Who. Mm. I think that might have been the first wet dream occasion 
I didn't really know what either was, but um, I remember having a strange sensation having watched particular episodes of Doctor Who. We've all had those. Well, no, no, but I'm glad it still played a part in my life as it seemed to have been probably the the match that lit the blue touch paper of puberty. <laughs> I was going to say, do you, do you remember when you first realised you had these feelings? And, and growing up, were you were you frightened by them? Did you... Want to be straight? Well, there was there was one book in the library about sexuality, and in that book there was one chapter on homosexuality, and it did start by saying it was a phase. So I was quite happy because I thought, if it's a phase, great, I'm loving it. So I was happy because obviously it sort of implied that everybody, in fact, I think it said everybody went through this phase. Mm. And I thought, there's no point in fighting it. I had tried, uh, as I said, you know, the odd snog, but it didn't work. And I just thought, well, no, this is what I feel. This is what I am. And I don't think there's any point in in fighting it. So um, opportunities arose and were taken with both hands. I'm intrigued because... You sort of grew up in Yorkshire. Yeah. I think it's safe to say a quite different time. I mean, it, it would only have been relatively recently that homosexuality was decriminalised. Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, I think the second year of my... Um, the second year... I would have been in my second year at grammar school. But I, growing up as a sort of gay teen, when there was still that sort of stigma around it, how difficult was that? Because I suppose there was still that sense that you were something other or... Oh, or... God, yeah. I, I think so. But I think the thing was, A, that my contemporaries uh, from the age of, let's say, 14, 15, every boy is desperate to do something with his cock. And um, they're not necessarily proud. And some are more desperate than others. And I had standards. But if they weren't getting it from the girls, they were quite happy to have a helping hand from somebody who was intelligent and funny. Uh, my social standing within my grammar school, we, you know, I was one of the last years where we had passed an 11 plus and we got on a bus every day to go seven miles to a very big old formal building. And we were streamed all day in terms of our intelligence mm. uh, and suitability for subjects. And there were very few of us who were in the top set for everything. And by some mistake of administration, <laughs> uh, I was. So in that sense, one was a desirable person to hang out with. And I was funny because I couldn't fight. And if I was threatened to a fight, then that was terrifying. But I could quite often make a witty put-down that would get other people to laugh at the person who might be causing the, the threat. And laughter dispels a lot of things. So mm. I think that gave me my place within the group. And, and, and therefore, that, and in my fifth and sixth form, running the School Photographic Society and having the keys to the dark room. Now, that helped a lot. It's strange. I can't imagine that applying to when I was growing up at all. It sounds, I was going to say, were there other people out, but you weren't out. But it sounds weirdly like people were very open 
in a way. Well, they were very open. I mean, in the sense that you think that everybody at boarding schools where there are only boys around are busy doing it, but they know they're going to grow up to be the chairman of BP. And I suppose if you're told it's just a phase. Yeah, yeah. And and the ones who, some of them had girlfriends, but just, you know, they just couldn't make their cock work often enough. So um, they would want to have their holiday snaps developed in the dark room. And at one end of the dark room were the enlargers and the chemicals. And you'd never let children near all this stuff now. No. Uh, and red lights. And there were some keen first and second years, which I had been once, who would do the developing. And at the back of the dark room, the people in charge, the six formers, would sit. And a six former had sat there for years. He went on to be a journalist and he went there so that he could snog his girlfriend and feel her up and no doubt, whatever. So that ultimately, when it passed to me to be in charge, I thought, well, that's obviously what those stools at the back of the dark room are for. So, you know, and if you were a, a pubescent, you know, spunk filled young man, and there was a chance of releasing that during your lunch hour, hey, you're going to go and join the Photographic Society. I have to say, this is already one of the most graphic conversations I've had in this podcast sequence, but uh, okay, it's lovely that you're so open. <laughs> Obviously, it wasn't a phase. When did you first, I suppose, realise that, yeah, you're in this for the long haul? I knew I was in it for the long haul, but you played it according to the environment. Mm. And I've never ever lied and said I was anything other than gay. But I remember arriving at drama school where there were a couple of guys in my year who were way ahead of me in terms of how they showed it to the world and were outrageous and fabulous and wonderful. And I just thought, that's not me. Mm. And I think that made me slip into my shell a little more. Was that the first time you'd have met another gay person, to your knowledge? I think knowingly. I mean, there were a couple of other guys in my year at school who I think everybody thought they were, but I think they were just quiet and intellectual and late developers. Mm. I had met, I had been at the National Youth Theatre, which was a great experience because it was an immensely cosmopolitan collection of, of people. And, you know, I came from Yorkshire and... I was doing plays with people called Tigger, who had a flat. Her mother had a flat in Chelsea, and we went to Chelsea for drinks on a Saturday night. And then, uh, you know, Tim Spall was with me, and Tim would go, You talk funny, you do. And I'm <laughs> thinking, Well, you're quite amusing. Uh, uh, and there were people there who either we thought were or were just, they were, but it wasn't the thing we were there for. So mm. we didn't flout it. And, and, and I don't think anybody thought I was anything other than gay, but. It didn't matter because we were there to do drama. And that's, you know, in a way, at that stage, um, drama was sort of the way out for being gay, really. Mm. But I think in Manchester, at, at Manchester Polytechnic School of Theatre in 1975, I met some people who just were so comfortable and outrageous. But the interesting thing was looking at the struggle they were then having in their work to try and be credible playing anything straight. Or, or you know, we were doing Ibsen and Chekhov and Gorky and all the shit you do in the first year at drama school. And um, there was a fabulous boy, no longer with us, who no matter what he was playing, 
and be able to oh i think they're going to knock down all the trees in the cherry orchard and you thought oh yeah find the right thing for him because this isn't you know mm. so they were fighting their own battle but i was a bit frightened of them because they seemed very comfy and i thought that's not me i had to define myself did seeing that as an aspiring actor make you more wary i suppose of being typecast ah I don't know that I've ever been aware of how I present myself. I mean, I, I do have this thing now, uh, and I said it in my book, The Working Actor, to young actors who are busy trying to use the third year of their life at drama school to go, oh, uh, my casting, this is my casting. Well, actually, hmm. I'm, not res- I'm not responsible for my casting. You are Scott Hancock, and Trevor Nunn is, and... Ken Russell is, and Michael Lindsay Hogg, and all the people who've directed me, because they see me, and they see something. So to some people, I am absolutely right-wing father, uh, posh, uh, and to other people, I am a big, hefty, corrupt Yorkshire cop. And I think there's a big thing about you can control it. Well, you can if you throw an image at people uh, and i just try and be myself but there are two versions of me one of which is more outrageous um than the other you might not have met that version but... i've never known you to be outrageous in your life i don't no. know what you mean no it's interesting you say you never lied about who you were but did you ever think i need to come out either to family or friends well i yeah um God, that's interesting, because I never told my parents Mm. uh, while my father was alive. I was adopted, and my parents had had three tries, all rather tragic, at having children. And then my mother, particularly, was still desperate uh, to find a focus for love, I think. And they, they literally went to a children's home on a Saturday afternoon in Sheffield. It was all very different then. And they looked through a glass window and there were six cradles, cribs, with babies in. And um, they pointed at one. And I asked my mother before she died um, about a little while ago, I said, what was it that made you point at me? And she just went, "Um, we just liked you. And you just think, what on earth was I doing in that crib (laughs) to have that instant? Jazz hands. It must have been because I, I, I wish I could do it now. And they took over my life and Mm. they gave me an awful lot of, yeah, love and created what I am. But there was something, my dad had been a miner and then he was a shopkeeper when his, uh, my mother's parents died, they took over the village shop. And you just thought, I'm getting on with everything, but it just seems, I don't know, I don't know how my dad would have taken it. And then... I think as I was getting into my 20s and thinking, yeah, come on, stop messing around. My dad died and Mm. I didn't get the chance. And I thought that's really a mistake and I regretted it. He had seen me on stage and he brought the whole of uh, the village's children because he did a lot for charity and he was in the... I can't remember what they're called, but the round table or the masons or something anyway. Mm. Uh, And they brought all the kids to see me strutting around the stage in full drag in a Ken Campbell panto at Nottingham Playhouse and and had been very proud. 
But then my mum was on her own, and there was about two years of sorting out my mum after her death, and we had to sell the shops and find a little house for her to live in. And then it was 1985, and we were right into It's a Sin country with adverts on the telly saying, AIDS, AIDS. And if you were about to tell somebody that you were gay at that time, you were basically announcing, as far as the world was concerned, because you got AIDS. Mm. so i didn't tell her and i thought that she knew i thought i think mothers know and we went on until 1990 and i was at a charity ball and after which i'd been organizing and after the charity ball had finished, uh, a lot of us went upstairs to the balcony bar in this very posh London hotel for a drink. And my mother was there and was staying with me for the night. And um, I was with people and Ian McKellum was there. Um, I was a bit pissed, um, as I used to be. And my mother was chatting to uh, Ian McKellum and he was being very sweet. And um, I said... Um, you do know who he is, Mum, don't you? And my mother said, of course I do, you know, in her best <laughs> posh Yorkshire. Uh, and I went, yep, that's Sir Ian McKellen. He's the puff who came out on Wogan. And my mother went, there is absolutely no need to be rude like that, Paul. <laughs> and I said, well, what's the problem? I'm gay too. And there was a pause in the conversation. And my mother just went, Oh, please, I wasn't sliced yesterday. What a way to announce it in front of Ian McKellen. I know, and um, <laughs> uh, there were quite a lot of people there who remember that moment, and mainly it was covered with alcohol. And I remember the next morning I was starting rehearsal for a play, and she'd stayed overnight, and I had to get up and go to a read on the Monday afternoon, so I had to get her back to St Pancras to get the train back to Sheffield or Doncaster and I remember making breakfast in the flat and then once she'd got tea and toast and things in front of her just saying you do remember what I said last night don't you and she went Paul I've known it for years it's just been waiting for you to decide to open your mouth and tell me so you know it, it wasn't a shock but um I just felt relatively unpressured because I would have been 32, mm. 33. So you'd sort of, you've got your own life going by that point, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And there hadn't been any, there hadn't been an, any long-term boyfriends. Mm. Uh, there'd been an awful lot of very, very short-term boyfriends. But there hadn't been anybody who I would say was a relationship. So there'd been nobody to take home, really. And and feel that I was deceiving her if I didn't tell her the true nature of the relationship. And she was a great mate when my dad died. You know, we became great friends. Um, and when I ultimately did meet the man I've now been with for 25 years, you know, she adored him. Mm. So that was completion for her. But it was never, a, it was never ever a problem. And I can imagine that, you know, if anybody said anything at the parish council or <laughs> the church hall coffee morning or anything, she would, you know, puff out her chest in her very best Les Dawson fashion and just say, uh, my son's gay, which is rather wonderful, really. And sort of going back to your university days or, or drama school days, hitting adulthood and sort of being in charge of your life then, 
How did you find dating as a gay man when it was less accepted? Did you embrace the scene? No, I was dreadful. I was dreadful. And I think I'm probably very lucky that, truth be known, uh, I probably would have been a very bad boy if there'd been those apps available because (laughs) I have been since in certain areas. But I think that when we were in Manchester, uh, we had a very exotic American join us for the second year. He was doing a year's placement, uh, and I've seen him since. And he was um, very New York, and he got a gay clubs. And I remember he met a rich older guy who basically funded his year at drama school, and they were forever going out to clubs and things. And I just wasn't, I just wasn't interested. And also the thing is about being at a drama school is you do work an awful lot harder than university students who turn up for two lectures a week and make some notes. So, you know, we're rehearsing in the evenings and then you were knackered and you went to bed. Mm. So I was relatively quiet, but there were a few encounters. I suppose the age of consent would still have been 21 at that point. Oh, God, um, yeah, but I don't think that really ever entered my thinking. No. <laughs> but, you know, I don't think if you, you know, I'm not going to get you to sign a waiver uh, as, I get, <laughs> as I get your A declaration of your, yeah. yes. Please note there will be no fee for this interaction and um, it will not be uh, deemed to have been taken place should the forces of the law start asking questions. Yes, I just need a photocopy of your passport, please. It's interesting because even then I remember there were the people who cut some of the best encounters I had during drama school were people who were people who were still trying to find themselves and ultimately found out that they were straight, mm. but they wanted to try it out. And you thought, well, you know, lend a helping hand or two. So I think that was the case. And then as I got older and became a working actor, I was just saddled with the rather naive assumption that every time I slept with them, that was somebody, that was love. Every time I slept with somebody, that we're going to fall massively in love. and, and, And that was it. And it took quite a few years for me to formulate a more itinerant attitude to sex. You know, anybody I, I had a, a a thing with for one night or for whatever, I thought that was it. They were going to come back. They were going to be making dates. It was going to be chocolates at the Odeon. And... So uh, it was a sort of very romantic mentality you had. What do you mean had? Well, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I still have it. But I think, mm. yes, I think it was because I hadn't you know it had been there'd been the furtive fumbling of the school years uh, and plenty of it which was very nice but then you thought the next stage was boyfriend and boyfriend and a lot of my friends and work colleagues were in relationships so you thought that's obviously the next stage of what happens um in those days it was still possible for people who were in their early 20s to think of the word mortgage so that um, you're thinking that that's coming up even that kept shitting on every relationship i had because you mm. you you go and have the sex it'd be great and then the disappointment would would fall the minute they either decided to get dressed and leave there and then and you'd take that as a personal slight or the following morning when they weren't asking for your national insurance number uh, <laughs> and offering you a Thompson's holiday catalogue. Hello, I'm Chris England, and I'm here to tell you about the Fun Factory podcast, available now on Great Big Owl. 
Each time I will be reading a couple of chapters of my novel, The Fun Factory, a historical comedy about the history of comedy, so it will kind of be like a free audiobook, which you can listen to at the gym, or jogging, or at your desk while pretending to do your job, or on the train without the embarrassment of people seeing you actually reading a book like some kind of SWAT. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You've spoken quite casually in some way about how, you know, you'd have a lot of encounters and helping hands and stuff like that um, and people were discovering themselves in a way do you think the lack of education around homosexuality had an influence of that do you think if there was more support or resources for people there would have been less experimentation well i think everybody experiments don't they i mean the thing that worries me now is there's an urge to 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 sort of have to try it out even if you you know you know, it's like going into a restaurant, isn't it? And the menu is 20 dishes long and you there's no way you're going to decide what you want to eat. Mm. Whereas when you go into a menu and there are three main courses, three starters and three desserts, it's brilliant. <laughs> and you can choose something really easily. And I think perhaps in some ways these days we've got the menu so long that uh, I don't know how anybody makes any decision as to what they are. And I I, I worry for people that, there are pressures. I know some people still are brought up in an environment in which they find it difficult to even begin to analyse where their affections or their desires might lie. But I think one can overpower people. We didn't have support as such, and I think I had a very different experience to somebody of my age who probably wasn't in the theatre, because in the theatre it is accepted. Hmm. Everybody in the theatre's gay, darling, aren't they, Scott? You know that. Well, that was a question I was going to ask you, actually. Is Obviously, you've seen the industry change over several decades. Do you think the industry and representation in the arts is better now than it has been? Or do you think there's always been that community? I think all this, I think there's always work to be done, an examination of all things. And, you know, I was doing a conversation the other week, came up in an interview about gay actors playing gay parts. Mm. I get that. I do get the sensibility. But then I would also ask, can only murderers play murderers? I have, we've all seen some brilliantly sensitive 
portrayals of gay men by straight actors, but we've also seen an awful lot of convincing portrayals of straight men by actors in real life who are openly gay, or sometimes not openly, and perhaps feel they can't be. Mm. So I think there is there is still cleaning to do on that front in that we have to be less wanting to put people in boxes. I mean, I think I'm very lucky because I thought everybody in the business knew I was gay. And then as it proven, as I've got older, there are an awful lot of people who don't. And I wish they, I mean, you know, I always, I, I remember wishing for ages that we all had little patches on our forehead, which flashed with colour. You know, so that when you were in a room and looking at some men and thinking, oh, please, please let his thing flash green. And I know it's, uh, you know, but of course, what you then realise is finding out is half the fun. And actually, in some instances, I'm not a gay man who likes to see these straight men. But, you know, if you find somebody attractive in a particular moment and they return that attraction and that's what you're into, then that's perfectly viable but at the same time there's an awful lot that you gain from a loving relationship with somebody who knows you probably better than you know yourself and um and can give that back to you talking about relationships you've you've talked about having experiences and hoping they'd become something more do you remember your first significant relationship and how that came about i think my only significant relationship is the one that i'm still in and hmm. uh, i met my partner when i was about to be 40 39 but i had got to a stage of my life of thinking i'm not going to meet mr right but i'm great because i meet mr wrong several times a week and he's a very good shag and in my life i also have an enormous amount of friends who give hmm. me a phenomenal amount of love and care for me. So what I need to do is to stop hoping that one has to be the other, and I should become happy with the fact that for some reason, I don't know, I do not have a problem meeting people for sex, and I have all these wonderful people. Stop trying to put them all in the same box and do that. And I thought, okay, that's the way it goes. And obviously that must have changed the vibe I was giving off or whatever, because then I went to do a theatre job and there was a uh, much younger man on the stage crew who I am trying to work out whether we fell in love or we had an encounter first, but I think we did sort of both simultaneously and then took it from there. But it was certainly, yeah, it was certainly life-changing. And I think part of it had come from my own attitude as to what I was looking for. I think I was giving off a different aura. What were you sort of ultimately looking for? Because I think now gay people growing up have the option to marry and have kids and everything like that. But, you know, I suppose you'd have just been looking for someone to literally settle down with. Yeah. Yeah, because that wasn't an option. I mean, when my partner and I became civil partners, after we'd been together for 10 years, we were a stand, and we did it within a couple of months of it becoming legal. Um, mm. But we did it. We were a standard that we did it, um, that we were ever allowed to do it. Um, but I think I, I just wanted somebody who I was responsible for and responsible to. I wanted mm. to come home and have somebody to to cook for, somebody to answer to. I wanted somebody who could take control of me in the sense of 
my life wasn't entirely my own. Having a responsibility to somebody else, I think, is a very stabilizing factor in your life that you're not just doing everything for self 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 but you have a responsibility to others and you get that sometimes from work colleagues with whom you have good relationships but ultimately in your partnership that is something i was looking for whereas in my 20s if i'd met my partner i would have probably wanted all that on the first night and by the time i did meet him when I was 39, I decided, no, you know, I'm not going to want all that. The good thing is, is that although the listeners can't see this, although I'm talking about him, he's just sneaked into the room with a plate of, <laughs> a plate of cheese toasties and a nice glass of cold sparkling water and a satsuma for my lunch. You've got him trained well. I know, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> um, do you find yourself drawn to the company of other gay people in your sort of working life and, and colleagues? Or? I don't like outrageous gay people. Um, I find them a bit frightening still. Um, but I then have that people go, oh, how can you say that? Because you're outrageous. But perhaps it's just that I don't like the competition. <laughs> you know, I, it, it's, it's strange, really, isn't it? I mean, I don't mind anybody, really. In the, but if I've got to choose, probably sexy, educated women and handsome, funny men. You don't find handsome, funny men. I think I can name two. So funny men and then handsome men. But I, I, I'm not, I'm not part of a. I wouldn't think I'm part of a gay community. No, you know. So you wouldn't be found on a pride march or anything like that. You never. Embraced I've done it once. I've done it once. Uh, I've never had a particularly strong bladder, uh, and. <laughs> I got to Clapham Common with my partner, and then I went, oh, I'm going to have to go and find the loo. And um, I went to find the loo, which was 27 shades of Gomorrah, and I thought, I don't need to be here any longer. Fair enough. I, I just find it interesting because I always think of you as being quite political in some ways, but not when it comes to this. No, I'm not, but I would feel very bad... Um, I feel very bad if anybody tries to stifle people. All this fuss that's just gone on about the Cadbury's cream egg advert with two men kissing and 21,000 people have said it should be banned. And you just want to... So immediately, of course, I've signed the petition and I've tweeted and go, you know, grow up. What is wrong? We're living in a world where people are dying as a result of all sorts of mismanagement. And the kiss is the... You know, at the moment, it's one thing we can't do. We can't kiss and hug people. And perhaps we should just realise how valuable it is to anybody to be able to kiss and that they're not running at each other with rifles. How do you feel yourself about expressing sort of public displays of affection? Are you comfortable holding hands or anything like that? Or is there still a wariness? I don't think there's a wariness, but we, but we just don't. But we rarely do it. Hmm. I mean, I will kiss if I meet him at the end of the day and I'm going to the theatre and he's organised the theatre and we meet up at the theatre and I walk in and he's there. Of course I'll kiss him and say hello, but then I, I, I do that to everybody, you know. I, uh, some of my corporate work takes me into the boardrooms of some very big companies uh, and they all comment on the fact that when did we all start hugging when we say hello? <laughs> Uh, you know, there's a chief exec of a major corporation who's one of my best friends in the world. And now... You know, it's not 
in any way uh, strange that we just give each other a big kiss on both cheeks and a massive man hug. And therefore, because of the way the corporate world works, of course, lots of other people do what he does. So, yeah, I, I, I am not uh, back, but it's not specifically related to my relationship. That is for us. That's something we share. Mm. You know, so we may hold hands sitting in theatre seat and whatever. It's like, I mean, it's the same, but that's exactly the same for a man and a woman on the tube or whatever. And you see people busy snoring. I just want to say, get a meal, you know, <laughs> eat properly before you come out. Do a crossword. Delving back a little bit now to something you touched upon earlier. You mentioned the brilliant It's a Sin and touching on the sort of AIDS crisis in the 1980s when you'd have been in your 20s, I guess. Yeah. How was that as an experience as it developed? Because, as you say, it was pretty much primarily associated with being a gay man. Oh, God, yeah. And also for me, I, in 1982, experienced the longest period of unemployment I'd yet had in my four years as an actor, and I was out of work for nine months, and I was living near Earl's Court, and I had no money, and I was making do with four interesting ways with a baked potato each week. There was no daytime television. Television didn't start till, you know, the, the programme before Blue Peter, and... You didn't have mobiles. You waited for a... If you, if you had an answering machine, you were at the cutting edge of technology. So you were at home waiting for the phone to ring. And the one thing I suddenly found I could do from about 10 o'clock at night was go out and cruise around the streets of Earl's Court and pick up people for sex. And it was mm. free. And I just discovered my ability to do that about four or five months previous, doing a play and, funnily enough, playing a gay character and, and, and it had unleashed an attitude in me. So I had done that and then I was quite busy and then and then I was very lucky because I was very busy for about three and four years. I went to the RSC. Uh, but while I was there, we all became very aware of AIDS and there was confusion as to what it was and the information as to what it did I don't think it was withheld, but we weren't told particularly because I, I I think there was a bit of an attitude that they didn't want to frighten everybody who wasn't going to get it. So I don't think we were desperately aware, but I think the the mentality was that, for me certainly, was that when they said this can give you HIV or AIDS or whatever, from that moment on I would stop that behaviour, but I couldn't regret what i'd done yesterday no so if they said kissing can transmit it then i right, i will stop kissing as from now but i can't regret that i kissed yesterday and i'd obviously been lucky i know people in that time who were uh, among the first and I, some of the people who the characters in it's a sinner based on i i knew personally and i just think that you know, perhaps, I don't know, in some ways, you just think perhaps we haven't learned anything. <laughs> no. Do you, do you, I mean, I suppose growing up where you, the only education you have is a book in the library telling you it's a phase, you know, there wasn't the level of sex education there is now. Were people aware of safe sex or just, was safe sex something that just related to pregnancy? Oh, yeah, I think, yes, I think so. I think one of the great things about being gay was you could splash everywhere and you weren't going to end up with twins. So, you know, definitely, I don't think there was anything about disease. And I think I did at one point have to go to the, um, I think I might have had to go to the GP 
because I didn't know where else to go. Mm. Um, and then I had a, a touch of something, as they say, you know, and had to have heavy antibiotics and this. And you're thinking, oh, God, right, you can get things. And no idea how I got it, other than obviously I got it from having sex with somebody. Mm. So I think we were remarkably probably uneducated. And did you find people treated you differently as the sort of AIDS crisis took on, knowing that you were a gay man? I think there was a shift in attitudes. I don't know whether I felt it, because as I said, the community we work in, we were losing a lot of people. Mm. We were the first to be hit, the arts. And so we were losing an awful lot of people. And I think, therefore, the circumstances that we were in were, uh, you know, that was first and foremost. Um, I remember going to visit a friend in in the ward at the Royal Free and sit and help him organise his funeral. And it was a fab, cheerful afternoon. But we were being very realistic and he wanted to make a list of everything he wanted for his funeral. Yes, there was an... uh, I think there was a shift in attitude and you were reading about it and you were hearing about it and you were hearing about people getting spat on in the streets and and things like that. And you just thought, I don't know whether it made me any quieter about being gay. As I said, I don't re- I, I wasn't shouting it, but... Um, it changed your behaviour, sort of behind closed doors. It changed my behaviour behind closed doors, absolutely, definitely, yes. Um, and that made things harder, because you think, you know, you're on your own, and one of the main ways of linking up was through sex. and. Mm. If you weren't doing that, you were thinking, right, you know, I lived in a in my own studio flat in London and you're coming back to an empty flat and having sexual contact was sort of part of your life and you thought, No, I can't I can't do that. I can't risk it. So it did it did change one's own attitude and I think the attitude of people to us. And I do remember the only time, even much, much later, so when are we talking? 2004, hmm. and my partner and I were getting a mortgage. We'd been together about three or four years, and we had to do an HIV test, and I think that was the first one I'd ever done. And we were sent uh, from quite, you know, an expensive mortgage company, mortgage brokers, very good deal, and we were given an address in Tooting. I have nothing against Tooting. I lived in <laughs> Ballam. Uh, but we were given an address in Tooting which looked like an abortion clinic that would have featured in a movie about Christie, the serial killer, to go to have AIDS tests in order to get a mortgage. Which you think would never have happened with it a wasn't heterosexual ever happened. If, if I'd been marrying a girl, that would not have happened. And that was then, and, um, and it was all a bit smutty, and you just thought, how fucking fantastic is that? You know? One positive from the sort of adversity is it does seem you know, talking to people, that there was a lot of unity within the community and it did sort of bring people close together. Yeah, I think it did. I think it helped a great deal. Uh, A lot of that coming together was to come to people's funerals. But I think it made us think that perhaps people are never going to be so comfortable with us just being another part of society and part of the whole thing, you know. And perhaps we just have to get on with doing what we do in our lifestyles and, and, and it's the other people who have to learn to live with it rather than us try and explain what we are. And, you know, uh, and the people who've done that through literature and through 
what's appeared on screen in people's living rooms and whether it's the you know the acceptable form of light entertainment camp yes or the serious dramas that we've had i think they've all chipped away at the wall moving on to a slightly lighter topic now uh-huh I want to talk to you a bit about a certain character called Mr. Colchester, who I cast you as in a series of audio dramas based on Tortured, a lovely sci-fi TV series. And, you know, Mr. Colchester is a lovely middle-aged gay man, happily settled with a uh, British Muslim husband, played by Ramon Tikram, who many people may know played lovely bisexual Ferdy in this life in the oh, 90s. Oh, God, don't, 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 because I just used to fancy the pants off Ferdy. But, uh... You know, it's been really interesting for audiences to see a character like that in a sort of sci-fi franchise. Because I suppose you've not really played many overtly gay characters. No, I haven't. I mean, I also now feature in Holbein, or for the last three years I pop in and out, and I'm supposedly a gay role model um, for the older man. But Mr Colchester I'm very proud of, because the writers are fabulous. I, I, I can't ever forget that scene which if there'd been a form to tick boxes uh, where he gets one over on Tyler uh, and also then reveals not only is he ex-special forces or whatever and he's gay, but he also has a Muslim husband, uh, you know, any sort of diversity overload, which is fantastic. But it's not about him being gay. It's not about him being gay. It's about this man who has this job to do. And he has to do that job uh, with a partner. And sometimes his job puts his partner at risk and he feels guilty about that. And just as he would if that partner were a woman, it doesn't have nothing, nothing special other than that it's love and uh, an enormous amount of respect between the two of them. And it's just woven into the story. It's just accepted. It's not signposted. And also the, the idea that the brilliant thing, of course, that... Um, I could play somebody who was ex-Special Forces uh, is a miracle that could only ever happen on radio. And it does feel like when you see a lot of uh, gay leads in, in drama, it's their sexuality that sort of drives the drama along in some ways. I know. Who's going to be gay in Bridgerton? Have they kept that very quiet? We kept, I mean, and, and my brilliant performances absolutely loved it. Wasn't it fabulously OTT and gorgeous? But at the same time, our our gaydar was swinging from, you know, the eldest son to, oh, the second son. He's gone to that artist with the nude models. Oh, is he not then? Oh, uh, you know, we're just waiting. Obviously in series two, now they realise we're all very into Bridgerton. Some, but somebody will be revealed. But hopefully it's just another Regency person who's trying to find an ideal partner and have a shag rather than, oh, my God, they're gay and the whole plot revolves around them. That's all we want. You know, when I go in and out of Holby, it's because there are other gay characters in Holby and they need a bit of sorting out uh, and they haven't really got anybody they can talk to. And the producers, I think rather cleverly, thought that actually gay men are not always just attractive and in their 30s and late 20s. And there are men who are much older who are gay and have more experience of the existence. Uh, so they brought Roger in, who's quite outspoken and opinionated, but capable of a great deal of affection. Mm. Uh, and we do deal with issues. Uh, the last time I went in, we were dealing with the Admiral Duncan bombing in Soho and about gay men's attitudes to it. 
But at the same time, it is just part of the plot of an episode. It's not about, you know, it, it's just a plot line. And I think that's really key if people are, are to see it rather than being, you know, big revelations. And that's what I love about what we have been allowed to do in Torchwood is that it's all about other things. It's about, mm. oh, God, it's about Cardiff being taken over. That's so much worse than anybody's. <laughs> anybody's sexual preference well that's it and you can have conversations between two gay men that aren't focused on sex which i think for a long time people thought if you had two gay men on screen they'd be you know destined to hook up yes and mercifully that hasn't had to happen for mr (laughs) colchester with anybody other than the lovely colin or ramon just to wrap up now i'm just curious looking back how long do you think it took for you to be comfortable with your sexuality? You know, I don't know. I think I was lucky because I thought everybody always knew. And then, you know, I've met people who came out when they were 34 and I've seen people in business situations who you thought, should be money. And then the other half of my dialogue says, it's none of my business whether he is or not. You know, it's not one's business to go around necessarily helping people. They have to find it for themselves. And, and you're just really grateful when they do and you see them blossom and and like the, the wattage of their inner bulb goes up when they're allowed to be themselves. Mm. I think I've had a remarkably lucky time in that I might not have announced it and said it, but I always knew it and I knew what it was. And I was the one operating how brightly I could shine. And if everybody was allowed to do that, not pressurising people, but just making people aware of what's available and and helping the people who find it slightly more difficult, then I think it would be less of an issue and um, a more human. A lovely note to end on. Thank you, Paul, so much for chatting with me. Scott, it's a pleasure. If you've enjoyed listening to my chat with Paul, do please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts or drop us a line on Twitter and Instagram at queer to eternity With three more episodes left to go in the series and next time I'll be joined by our very first queer duo chatting about their lives, their friendship and their brand new queer platform. More on all that next time. Mr. P here. And the other Mr. P. And we are the hosts of two Mr. P's in a podcast. The educational podcast where you don't actually learn a thing. No, instead we explore the weird, wonderful and downright hilarious things that happen in school from people actually doing the job. We reminisce on our own time at school, funny things we experience each day. And of course, we share your hilarious stories from the chalk face. So if you work in a school or just want a nostalgic trip down memory lane, sit up straight, fingers on lips, and get ready for the lesson. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 